Welcome. This is Dimensions of Prophecy with Kenneth Cox. I'm Brenda Wood. Many people today are asking the question, who is the Antichrist? Pastor Cox's subject tonight is entitled, The Antichrist as Prophesied in the Bible. We're going to be looking at the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7. There we find described four terrible creatures, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a dragon. We'll learn what each of these beasts represents. On the fourth beast, the dragon, there are ten horns. We'll discover what those ten horns represent. And among the ten horns, there comes up a little horn, which the Bible describes as the Antichrist. Pastor Cox will identify that little horn for you from Scripture tonight. This is a most important topic, so let's go directly to the crusade to join Pastor Kenneth Cox with tonight's lecture, The Antichrist as Prophesied in the Bible. Well, it looks like we're packed. They tell me the overflow room is full, and uh, we appreciate all of you being here. Appreciate your interest in God's Word very special way. A lot of folks have asked me from time to time if it is absolutely necessary, if it's required to understand Bible prophecy in order to be saved. And I can't really say that it is. I can't say that it's necessary, that it's a requirement that you understand Bible prophecy in order to be saved. But the Bible does give us some very clear instructions about understanding Bible prophecy. And it says this in the book of Peter. It says, We also have the prophetic word made more sure, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises, rises in your heart. So it says here that you and I are going to do well if we take heed that if there's one thing that's sure, it's Bible prophecy. So God says, look at it, take heed, find out what it says. But some people say, well, it just all depends on how you look at it. One person might look at it this way, somebody else might look at it another way, somebody else might look at it another way. Just all depends on how you interpret it. No. No, it does not. In fact, it says this, the very next verse. Knowing this verse, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any what? Private interpretation. The Bible will interpret itself if you and I let it. The problem is there's a lot of people who won't let it, like why well, I was studying with this family, and this man knocked at the door, and they invited him in, and he came in and sat down, and we were studying the Bible together, and he said to me, uh, I don't believe what you're saying. And I said, well, that's all right. I said, we live in a free country. You're allowed that right. He said, well, I don't think it's in the Scripture. And I said, well, I hope I'm not teaching something that's not in the Scripture. And he said, well, show it to me. And I said, okay. I said, let's turn over here to the book of Isaiah. And he said, just a minute. He said, I don't take anything out of the book of, out of the Old Testament. He said, all that I follow is just the New Testament. And I said, okay, that's fair enough. I said, let's turn over here to the Gospel of Luke. He said, now, just a minute. He said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all written about the ministry of Christ up until he died. And he said, what I follow is everything after the death of Jesus. So he said, I don't take it out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And I said, well, okay. I said, let's turn over here to the book of Revelation. He said, now, just a minute. 
He said, that book of Revelation, he said, that's all symbols and that type of thing. And he said, so you can't take it out of the book of Revelation. And I said, okay, let's turn over to the book of Hebrews. He said, just a minute. He said, that book of Hebrews was written for the Hebrews. Well, when he got through with me, that's all I had left. You see, you, you can't, you can't understand the scripture that way, folks. You've got to get into the Word of God, and if you and I will get into it and study it, we can find out what God says, but it cannot be of a private interpretation. Now, today, we're taking a look at the subject of the Antichrist. The word Antichrist is used four times in Scripture. Four times. Those four times are in First and Second John. So to study the Antichrist and not look at those Scriptures would not be right. So we're going to take a look at these scriptures in John. We're going to start out here. And it says this. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father. So it says that if somebody denies the Father, he's an Antichrist. That means that anybody could be an Antichrist. Any person who denies the Father, denies God the Father, it says he's an antichrist. All right, let's continue on. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Please notice that John all of a sudden starts talking about two antichrists. Did you catch that? He's talking about the antichrist to come. And he's talking about antichrists that existed already. It says here that we know that there are many antichrists. Someone who denies the Father, someone who denies Christ. The Bible says that person is an antichrist. But he says there's an antichrist that is coming. That's a different one he's talking about. Let's continue to read one more here. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. So it says that someone that teaches that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, he said that is the very spirit of Antichrist, and you've got to be very careful because I find a lot of people today running around trying to tell me that my Lord didn't face temptation like I face it. And you better put it down that he faced temptation just like you and I. He came in the flesh. He lived here like us, and he is one with us. And you need to make that clear. It says that is the spirit of the Antichrist when people going around saying that Jesus did not come in the flesh. All right, listen carefully. It says, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was what? Coming, and even now it is already in the world. Now, what John is saying, he's talking about an antichrist that is coming, and he says the spirit of that antichrist is already in the world. That cannot be talking about a human being. Human beings don't live that long. They don't live clear back in the days of John and go clear down to the coming of Christ. That has to be talking about a power, a system. John's talking about two types of antichrist. He says people that deny God the Father. They deny that Jesus came in the flesh. He said those people are antichrist. But he said there's an antichrist that the spirit of it's already in the world and that it is coming. That's talking about a power. That's talking about a system 
And that's what we're going to look at today, that power, that system that John's talking about as the Antichrist. For many deceivers have gone out in the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So just someone who denies God the Father, denies the Son, that person is an antichrist. Now, the Bible, speaking of this antichrist, says that he is going to do some things, and I want us to identify those things here this morning. And you find it in the book of Thessalonians, and it says, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is what? God. So it says that the Antichrist will usurp the position of God. This is what the Antichrist is going to endeavor to do. Now, with that, we're going to go to the book of Daniel, and we're going to begin to take a look as the book of Daniel identifies the Antichrist force. Going to go to Daniel, the seventh chapter. It says, Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night. Behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So it says that Daniel is having a vision, and in his vision he sees the wind blowing across the water, stirring up the great sea, it says. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. So it says the wind is blowing across the water. And as a result of that, four beasts come up out of the earth. Now, we're going to identify certain things here this morning. One thing that we're going to get clear is when it talks about the wind blowing across the water, the Scripture uses water in Bible prophecy to represent something. It says in Revelation the 17th chapter and verse 15, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are what? Peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So you find in Bible prophecy, when you're studying Bible prophecy, that water represents people, nations, tongues. This is what it represents. So when he's talking about the wind blowing across the water, you find in Bible prophecy that wind has a definite meaning. In the book of Revelation, it says, And after these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four, what? Winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to what? Harm the earth and the sea. So you'll find that in Bible prophecy, that wind represents war, strife, commotion. It's talking about holding back the winds of strife. And so it's saying that the wind blew on the water, meaning war, strife among the people. And as the result of it, it says four beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. So we find four beasts rising up out of the sea. Now, the Scripture tells us exactly what these four beasts are. It tells us here in Daniel, it says, those great beasts which are four are four what? Kings which shall arise out of the earth. So it tells us clearly that there was war, there was strife among the people, and as the result, four different kingdoms 
rose up. We're going to quickly look at each one of those kingdoms. We're not going to spend much time on it. It tells us that the first one was like a lion. The first was like a lion, had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off. It was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. This lion, represented here in Daniel 7th chapter, represented the kingdom of Babylon. Babylon of old. In fact, the scripture refers to Babylon as a lion. If you go over to the British Museum, they did much of the excavation on the ruins of Babylon. You will see there statues of lions with eagle's wings. They used that to represent the nation of Babylon. This happens to be the only beast of all of them we talk about that it says that a man's heart was given to it. And the reason a man's heart was given to it is because of the conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar. Because he accepted the Lord, it says that a man's heart was given unto it. Babylon, one of the most gorgeous kingdoms in the history of man. Beautiful. He intended for that kingdom to last forever, but God had other ideas in mind. And it says that a second one arose that was like a bear. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said, Thus to it arise, devour much flesh. This second beast represented the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia overthrew Babylon. It says that the bear raised itself up on one side. It meant one side was taller than the other, and that's because the Persians were stronger than the Medes. This is a coalition of two powers coming together under one power, but the Persian part was stronger. That's why in your history books it refers to it as the Persian kingdom. The bear also had three ribs in its mouth, which represented the three countries that Medo-Persia overthrew, and they were Babylon, Libya, and Egypt were the three countries that she overthrew. Now you remember that God had prophesied that it would be overthrown. God even prophesied and called the man by name who would overthrow the city of Babylon, called Cyrus by name, a hundred years before Cyrus was ever born. God called him by name, said exactly how he would overthrow the city. Cyrus took his men, and they marched on the city of Babylon. Through the city of Babylon flowed the river Euphrates. When Cyrus and his men got close to the city of Babylon, they closed all the gates. And history says that the people went up on top of the walls of Babylon and threw food to Cyrus and laughed at him. Cyrus took his men, and they marched down the Euphrates River, and at a selected spot they began to dig canals. And then at a certain night when Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, was going to have a party, he took, broke the dike on those canals and diverted the river. And he and his men marched up the muddy bottom of the Euphrates River, and the two-leaved gates that the scripture had prophesied would be left open. The guards were drunk and had left them open, and he and his men marched in and overthrew it. Over in the palace, they were having a party, and that's where the bloodless hand wrote on the wall, many, many tickle you farson. Daniel interpreted, thy kingdom is weighed in the balances and found wanting and given this night to the Medes and the Persians, and so it fell. 
Let's go to the third beast. The third beast was like a leopard, it says. After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given unto it. This beast represented the kingdom of Greece. Greece overthrew Medo-Persia, 331 B.C. Alexander the Great met Darius and the Medes and Persians on the plains of Arbela. Darius had one million men. Alexander the Great had 20,000. And Alexander the Great overthrew him. The four wings on the back of this leopard represented the swiftness with which Alexander the Great took everything. Seven years. He had conquered everything he could lay his hands on and wept because there was nothing else to conquer. And the height of his power, he is suffering from epilepsy, from malaria, and from drunkenness. And one night in a drunken debauch, he realized he was dying, and he called in his four generals, and they asked him, to who will you give the kingdom? And he said, I'll give my kingdom to the strongest. And so when Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided among his four generals, and that's why that leopard beast has four heads. Okay, Alexander the Great took everything that he could. But as his kingdom was divided, one of those generals began to give nurture to sedition against the others, and it brought about in history what was known as the dragon or the Roman Empire. After this, I saw in a night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, extremely, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. The fourth beast represented the iron monarchy of Rome. Rome overthrew Greece 168 B.C. And it says that this beast would do a lot of things. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. This power is the power that was ruling at the time Jesus was born, because you remember it was the decree of Caesar Augustus that sent Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. While they're there in Bethlehem, Christ was born. It's the very same power that crucifies him, because you remember he was tried in the court of Pilate. You remember it was Roman soldiers stuck the crown of thorns on his head. If you remember, it was a Roman soldier that stuck the spear in his side. Rome ruled from 168 B.C. to 476 A.D., longer than any other power. Now, follow carefully because something begins to develop. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. Now, it says that this fourth beast had ten horns. It's telling you that those ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. Listen carefully because it's beginning to identify a little horn. All right, another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, shall intend to change times and laws. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. Now, I just read to you. You probably didn't catch it, but we'll look at it. 
I just read to you eight points by which God identifies that little horn that the Scripture says is the Antichrist. Those eight points. Now, before I go through those eight points with you, I want to get something real clear. I shall endeavor to give you Scripture for each point, also historical background for each point. If you don't agree with me, that is your privilege, okay? But please don't do me like a fellow did after I preached on this subject and he came up to me and said, I don't agree with you. And I said, that's okay. He said, well, I just don't see it. And I said, that's all right too. And he said, well, I just, I just can't accept that. And I said, well, what do you see it? How do you see it? He said, oh, I don't know what it means. I just disagree with you. Now, dear friend, all I'm saying is if you disagree with me, I hope you go and study until you do have some convictions about it. It's important enough that you do have some convictions about it. The other thing I want to tell you is I'm going to be talking about a power, about a system. I am not talking about people. Are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? I am a citizen of the United States of America. Sometimes the United States government does some things that I don't agree with. Maybe they don't ever do anything you don't agree with, but there's things they do that I don't agree with sometimes. Just because the government does something that you or I might not agree with, does that make everybody in the United States bad people? Okay, so just because I'm talking about a system does not make people within that system bad people. Okay, are we together? All right, so I want that real clear here. So you understand what I'm talking about. I'm going to give you eight points that the Scripture just gave you in those two verses of identifying this little horn, which the Bible says is the Antichrist. Now, if you can take these eight points that I'm going to give you here this morning, and if you can make those eight points fit any other power on the face of the earth, come see me. I'll listen to every word you have to say. But don't get four of them to fit. You're going to have to make all eight of them fit. If you can make all eight of them fit any other power, I'll listen to what you have to say. All right, the Scripture gives these eight points. One, time it is to appear. It tells you a specific time that it is to appear. Two, it says it shall be diverse or different. It's an old English word for different. It says that it must subdue three kings. It also said that it would have eyes like the eyes of a man. Five, it said it would speak great words against the Most High or pompous words. It says that it would wear out the saints of the Most High or persecute God's people. Seven, think to change times and laws. Eight, it says that it would rule for 1,260 days. Now, or years, we'll look at that. Those eight points. Now, we're going to look at those eight points very quickly to see what the Scripture has to say about them. The first one, it says this. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. It says that this little horn is going to rise out of those ten. Now, those ten horns, the Roman Empire fell apart in 476 A.D. 
that's when the Germanic tribes moved down on the Roman Empire and they began to break it up. They were such people as the Anglo-Saxons, the Franks, the Hurliai, the Vandals, the Ostrogoths, and they moved in there and they broke the Roman Empire to pieces. They did that in 476 A.D. It's saying that this little horn is going to come up after them. Therefore, this little horn must rise sometime after 476 A.D. That it has to do. History tells us that's what happened. You see, when the Roman Empire fell apart, a emperor of Rome by the name of Justinian wanted to pull it back together. Justinian was fighting the Goths, these Germanic people, trying to hold it back together. His general, Justinian's general's name was Belsarius. Belsarius was fighting the Goths and had backed, the Goths had backed Belsarius and his army clear to the very gates of Rome, the city of Rome. Inside the city of Rome was a bishop. The bishop's name was Verquillus. Verquillus was a very godly man. He loved the Lord. He served the people. He tried to do that which is right, and he would have nothing to do with the war. So when Justinian's army got close, he would close the gates to the city of Rome. Or if the Goths got close, he would close the gates to the city of Rome. He had nothing to do with the war. The Goths had backed Belsarius, Justinian's army, clear to the very walls of the city of Rome. It looks like they're going to wipe that whole army off the map. So happens that Justinian's wife is a Christian. She's a very good Christian woman. She also happens to be a friend of the bishop, Verquillus. Justinian went to his wife and pled with her to get Verquillus to open the gates of the city of Rome and let his army in and save them, which out of respect to her, he did. When they opened the gates of the city of Rome, they let Justinian's army in and closed the gates and kept the Goths out. The moment Belsarius got inside, Justinian and Belsarius had already agreed that they would execute Verquillus. They killed him. And they put on the seat of the bishop of Rome their own puppet in Sylvester. Reason? Justinian felt that if he could not control the empire politically, he would be able to control it religiously. The date for that market was 538 A.D., and history says that the bishop of Rome stepped to the seat of Caesar and seized the scepter. You have the beginning of what is known in history as papal Rome. Okay, that's one point. Let's continue on. Second point. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. Another shall rise after them, that's the little horn, and he shall be diverse from the first. That word means different. These ten Germanic tribes were political tribes. They were pagan, political, but not this little horn. This little horn is a political religious power. Both. It's different than all the other. It not only rules the point, the people on the points of politics, but it rules on the point of religious belief. It tells the people this is what they must believe. 
It's different than all the others. It's two points. Third point. Must subdue three kings. The ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. You see, when these Germanic people moved down on the Roman Empire and broke it to pieces, they were barbaric people. Christ had given the commission to the Christians that this gospel was to be preached. Where? To all the world. And so the Christians saw in these Germanic people the opportunity to preach the gospel. So they moved in and they began to preach the gospel among these Germanic people and they found these Germanic people with open hearts and they accepted the gospel and that's why Western Europe today is Christian. You see, because the Anglo-Saxons became the English, the Alamanni became the Germans. You see, they became the nations of Western Europe today and they went in and preached the gospel among them and they became Christians. Among them... There were three tribes, the Hurlii, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. There was a man that went in and began to preach among them, and he preached a belief called Arianism. Those three tribes accepted the belief of Arianism. You understand the belief of Arianism? Arianism simply teaches that Jesus Christ was a good man, that he was a prophet, but it teaches that he was not the divine son of God. Those three tribes accepted that. Justinian was violently opposed to that as well as the papal power, and so they sent out their army and they wiped off the map, the Hurlyites, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. If you don't believe me, then go down to the library. As I told you before, you won't find it overcrowded. And look it up. You'll find that the descendants of the Alamanni are the Germans. The descendants of the Franks are the French. The ancestors of the English are the Anglo-Saxons. Find me. Find me some descendants from the Hurlii, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. They're not there. Did away with them. Uprooted three of them. Let's continue on. We're just giving you points to identify this power. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. That's what it's talking about. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, when it says that this power would have eyes like the eyes of a man, you'll find that many of the powers have horns on them. Those horns represent power. They, some of those horns had crowns on them, meaning that that power would be controlled by a king or a monarch. Sometimes they don't have crowns, meaning they're going to be ruled by a senate or a house of commons. In this case, this horn has eyes like the eyes of a man, meaning that that power would be controlled by one man, namely that of the Pope. That's exactly what it's saying, that it would rule and that it has. All right. And he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time this morning, but I can read you statements where they say, 
that all the words in this book that apply to Jesus Christ apply to the Pope. I can read to you statements where it says that he, when speaking on church matters, is infallible. In the great encyclical letter of Pope Leo XIII, this is how he ended it up. The Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were God and the vicar of God, we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Now, I can read you statements for two hours on this same subject. You'll have to be your own judge. But when it says there in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, when I read you, that it says that he would exalt himself, that he would be like God, that's exactly what it's talking about when it says he would speak pompous words. All right, let's continue. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High and shall persecute the saints of the Most High. The old English version says, wear out the saints of the Most High. All you have to do, all you have to do is go and read some history. And if you want to read some books about it, let me name some books for you. You ought to read uh, Fox Book of Martyrs. Or you ought to read short, short stories of the Reformation. Or read Here I Stand by Bainton or the history of Europe by Qualbin, or the history of the Reformation by D'Aubigny. Read those. Historians will tell you that this power has slain somewhere between 150 and 200 million people. If you don't think they haven't, then you read about the massacre of St. Bartholomew where she slew 60,000 Huguenots one Sunday morning. Read about the Spanish Inquisition. Read about the Inquisition of the Dutch. Read about the persecution of the Waldensian people. And I think it will, history will bear out very clearly that she has persecuted the followers of God. All right. It says, and he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and laws. Now, if you pick up your Bible and you turn over to Exodus, the 20th chapter, you'll find there the Ten Commandments. I, it really doesn't make much difference which Bible you use. If you take a King James Version or if you take the New International Version or if you take uh, the American Catholic Version or if you want to take any other version and read the Ten Commandments, they almost read word for word. Very little difference in them. But when you pick up a catechism, a Catholic catechism, they don't read like they're written in the Scripture. For instance, the second commandment has been taken clear out. The second commandment that says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images, that one's been taken out. And so the third commandment has been moved up to the second. And the fourth commandment that says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, they've moved it to the third one. And so when they get down to the tenth commandment, they just divide the tenth one. You know, that one says, thou shalt not 
covet. It says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. And so they divide it, and their ninth commandment says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. And the tenth one says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. And that's the way they get ten. They change the law of God. It also says that they would change time. See? You read your Bible. And you'll find that God has always counted time from sunset to sunset. He said the evening and the morning was the first day. The evening and the morning was the second day. And as you go through Scripture, that's the way time was counted. It was counted that way until 1582 A.D., at which time Pope Gregory changed it and said that people would count time from midnight to midnight. And all of us today count time from midnight to midnight. And so you find changes that were made. All right, let's come to the last point. It says... And he shall speak pompous words against the Most High and shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and laws. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. When you run on to that statement in Scripture, time, times, and a half a time, time in Bible prophecy represents one year. Times represents two years. A half a time represents a half a year. In biblical reckoning of time, there happens to be 360 days in a biblical year. If you need proof for that, you go to Genesis, the seventh chapter, and it'll make that very clear that there are 360 days in a biblical year. Okay, so if we got 360 days in one year time, times being two years would be 720, and a half a time would be 180, giving us 1,260 days. And according to Bible prophecy, a day represents a year. Ezekiel 4, verse 6 tells you that. Numbers 14, 34 tells you that. So that gives me 1,260 years. I told you that Justinian and his general, Belsarius, marched into Rome and put Verquilus to death in what year? 538 A.D. It's when they put him to death. That is the beginning of papal Rome. God said it would be given into his hand for 1,260 years. So if I add 1,260 years to 538 A.D., it takes me to 1798. Those years, those 1,260 years in secular history are known as the years of papal supremacy. That's what they're known as. You see, but there's a man who wants to rule Europe. His name is Napoleon. He knows he can't rule Europe unless he breaks the back of the papal power because Rome owns much of Europe. If you've never read about the papal states, you should. So, on November the 9th, 1798, Napoleon sent his general Berthier into Italy. He marched into Rome and took the Pope prisoner. November the 9th, 1798, exactly as the Scripture prophesied. It happened. Took him back to France where he died in prison. So it was given to his hands for 1,260 years. 
just exactly as the Bible prophesied. Now, folks, I've given you eight points. If you can take those eight points and make those eight points fit any other power, I'll listen to anything you have to say. But I've never been able to make it fit any other power. Now, I've taken you this far. I'm not going to take you any farther today. That, this isn't where the Scripture stops. But I think I've given you enough to digest, okay? At one time, anyhow. And you need to look at it and see what it says because the Scripture tells you there's a whole lot more that's happening. But what I'm trying to tell you today is you've got to take what we have just studied and you've got to look at it in light of today and what's happening. If you aren't doing that, then, friend, you're missing what the Scripture's telling you you're supposed to do. You've got to look at it in light of what you know and what's happening today. That's what this Scripture means when it says here, we also have the prophetic word made more sure. God's saying if there's anything that's sure, it's prophecy. You see, God's prophecies just don't miss. They're dead on. The prophetic word is sure now, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. God said, study it, heed what it says, look at it so you can know what's going to happen, what's going to take place. As a light that's shining in a dark place until the day dawns, the morning star rises in your heart. It's not long until Jesus is coming. There's a lot of events out here that are going to erupt. I mean, they're going to take place quickly. And you and I better be ready. I can tell you that for sure. Better be ready. You see, God is calling. God's calling for people to get ready for the coming of the Lord. I need to make up my mind. I need to be clear. I need to make a decision whose side I'm on. You know, it bothers me. I find Christian people, if this is a center line, and this is right and this is wrong, I find there's too many Christians that are getting as close to wrong as they can get. Oh, dear friend, I plead with you, get away from there. Quit playing around. Quit playing around with the world. Quit all the time getting as close to wrong as you can get. Get away from it. Go to the Lord. Turn your hearts to Him. Love the Lord. Serve Him. Quit flirting with that which is wrong and make a decision and get on the side which is right. God's calling for people to get ready, to prepare for His coming, to look for Him. It's on us. A lot of things are going to happen. We're going to be taking a look at it in the next few nights as we study about the mark of the beast and other things that are happening today, things that are developing that you and I need to be ready for the coming of the Lord. Place your life completely in the hands of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank thee so much for thy word. Thankful for prophecy that we can study. And oh Lord, we pray that you'll bless each one here May they decide to place their lives completely in your hands.
May they realize that you love them, that each one of them is your child. Lord, may they grow in grace, the knowledge of the Lord. May all of us keep that relationship with thee very close. For this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight, our subject is the object of the devil's attack. We're going to be talking about something that the Antichrist and the devil have been trying to do away with. It's preparation for Sunday night's subject on the Mark of the Beast. So we hope that each of you can be back with us tonight. God bless each one of you. Have a good Sabbath.